Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. saw a miracle. <laughs> you know, these things happen. Actually, what you just saw was something that's been going on in our church for the last oh, seven or eight years. It was about eight years ago that the leaders of our children's ministry decided that it would be a good thing to get our kids together and teach them that being a Christian is more than just going to church on Sunday, but that there are some very real things that happen in your life because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And uh, they chose Romans chapter 12 to be the focal point of the changes that go on. Uh, as you know, in our time together in the Word, we've been aiming towards Romans 12 for the last year. Uh, and uh, everything we've done for the last year has all been introduction to this sermon series on Romans 12. And I think uh, probably we'll spend maybe 30 or 40 weeks uh, looking at Romans 12. I don't know why people are laughing at that, because it's actually uh, close to the truth. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but we got the kids together and uh, had a little event for them. And every year we've done that with our fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. Uh, you saw some 11th graders up here as well. They started way back when. Uh, with the Romans 12 idea, that I'm a Romans 12 Christian. There were two aspects of the book of Romans that were um, particularly highlighted in this uh, ministry. Uh, the first was that we are not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds. And we were trying to teach our kids that they aren't to go along with the world, just be like everybody else. There's a real difference that being in Christ makes in a, in a person's life. And so we were teaching about nonconformity with the world, but rather being conformed to the image of Christ. The second emphasis is found all the way down in verse 10 or so, uh, where it says, we, we want you to love one another. You know, just absolutely love one another. And some translations then go on to say, and uh, just show honor and respect to each other. And we were trying to teach that it is a good thing when we love one another by reaching down to others who aren't in our own group, but we bring them into our group, particularly the older kids reaching down to the younger kids. Uh, can you imagine what a, um, uh, just a thrill it is for someone in middle school, I almost said junior high school, but that, that's how I grew up. But in middle school, you know, you're, you're a seventh grader, you come into the youth group, and someone in the 11th grade talks to you. I mean, this is an amazing thing when you're in the 7th grade. And this is what we've been teaching. It's taken some years to catch on, but that's what you were seeing this morning was uh, the result of that, the Romans 12 Christian. You see the T-shirt? You like that logo? You too can have a T-shirt. <laughs> Uh, just call the church office. We've got sizes. We can, uh, we can get one to you because what we want now as we go into the book of Romans is we want our church to be a Romans 12 church. Amen. That it's more than just kids. It's really all believers need to be a Romans 12 
believer. And that's what we'll be looking at uh, for the next several, several, several months uh, and trying to tease that out and flesh that out based on what we've just been through in Romans chapters 1 through 11. So uh, let's dive in. We're finally there. Romans chapter 12. We look at the first two verses uh, for a scripture reading. Our time together will be uh, really just in verse 1. Next week will be verse 2. Uh, you see a pattern developing. No doubt. But we start in verse 1, Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we stand in absolute amazement that you love us the way you do, that in spite of our sin, you have reached down to us and picked us up out of the depths and the darkness and the pit, and you've brought us into the light of Jesus Christ. We stand in amazement of such love that even though we were your enemy, even though we wanted nothing to do with you, even though we were gladly children of wrath, yet you came and offered up the righteousness of Christ in our stead, that he would die in our place, his life for ours, and now indeed his righteousness placed upon us. We stand in amazement of such grace that looks upon us in our weakness, in our doubt, in our confusion, and yet you call us to be useful in the work of the kingdom. You give us the resources whereby we might serve you by sharing the love of Christ with others. We stand in amazement, Father, at who you are and that you love us the way you do. But Father, we're so grateful that that love has been now brought to us that the word of the gospel has come to us, that you have moved our hearts, we have embraced Christ, and now you've given us the resources of the Holy Spirit. Make us obedient, useful, open, willing. Father, just employ us that in our lives Christ would be exalted, lifted up, and you would be glorified. And I ask it in Jesus' name. I could have done that. One of the first memory verses I learned growing up in the church was, um, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And uh, what I learned from that is that going to church was supposed to be fun. Going to church is supposed to be fun. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, so a lot of us grew up in the church. Uh, our parents were believers, and so we grew up in believing families and have had church as a part of our experience. Not everyone. A lot of people have, have come to uh, the faith maybe a little bit later in life, or perhaps church wasn't a part of your, of your upbringing. But for me, it was a part of my upbringing. And uh, what I knew was that I was glad when they said unto me, it's time to go home now. Uh, you know, because when you grow up in church, I mean, let, let's be fair to the little ones. It's kind of long and tedious, and it looks an awful lot like school. And so, um, you know, you're not, you're not sure about this thing. So you get dragged to church, and you go to church. Okay, I'm fine. I'm, uh, we all go to church. 
And then something happens. Along the way, you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You become a believer. You don't quite understand it, of course, but um, suddenly, instead of just being dragged to church and going to church, you start uh, enjoy being there. You enjoy doing church, if I can put it that way. You, you enjoy singing the songs and you learn the hymns and uh, with all the profound depth of a, of a you know, maybe a, a seventh grader, you're singing, uh, you know, the, the little brown church in the wildwood, the little brown church in the vale. Anybody sing that song? That's right. Okay, the lyrics are in the Smithsonian. <laughs> But I can remember, you know, it being in junior high school and I'm singing along, no spot is so dear to my childhood. As it, what, <laughs> how could any spot be dear to my childhood? I'm still in my childhood. So anyway, we're, we're singing those songs. But we're doing church and we're having fun uh, because church is, is, is a good thing to do. But uh, for a lot of us then at some point, for me it was right around my sophomore year in college, uh, it was no longer a matter of just going to church or just doing church. It became a matter of being church and realizing that this church thing on Sundays really has a week-long, lifelong application going on to it. And you realize that um, the, the worship that goes on in church is actually to be a, a life of worship going on from there. And you, and you start to get that, it starts to click in your head in that way. In other words, you, you reach a point where you, you have to make a critical decision, and that is you're looking at your faith, you're looking at what you believe, and you're, you're trying to, to come to the, the conclusion, is this for real? Is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Or will this just be a part of my tradition and my heritage to be visited on special occasions? And in, in a very real sense, you've reached a go, no-go point. You know, that, that thing when they're launching rockets and they're monitoring everything and they come to a point in the countdown and it's go or no-go. You've either got to shut it down or pull the trigger. And you come to that, that spot in your walk and you realize, my faith has got to be go or no-go. It's got to be all the way or it, it's just going to retreat back into where I was. It's sort of like that point of no return on, on an airplane flight as you're flying over the ocean. You know, you get to a point on the, on the journey where the fuel management thing says that you've either got to keep going or turn back. And if you keep going, there's no turning back. But if you turn back, there's no turning around and going forward. You've got to decide, where am I going and what's going to happen? And you reach that point of, of decision where you have to, have to go, no go, point of no return, point of no turning back. And a lot of it has to do with whether or not we're going to worship in spirit and truth with our whole lives or whether it's just going to be a part of our lives, a nice part of tradition, something we used to do, used to have meaning to us. And so we come now to Romans chapter 12. And essentially what Paul is saying to his readers is, we've reached the point of no return. We've reached the point of go or no go. We've reached a critical point where you've got to decide, is this thing we've been talking about for 11 chapters? We've been talking about the grace of God. We've been talking about the mercy of God. We've been talking about how God saves through Christ those who believe, those who have faith. We've been talking about the gospel, and now for 11 chapters, having talked about what God has done to save us, now let's start talking in chapter 12 and through the end of the book, let's talk about what is the result of God's work in our lives. And there's a decision we have to make at that point. 
Maybe I can uh, put it into perspective by talking about the will of God. And theologians like to decide or dissect everything and cut it into parts. And a lot of theologians talk about the two wills of God. It's actually one will, but there's two ways to think about the will of God. There's different ways to, to describe it. I won't go into those, but simply think about it this way. There are some things that are part of God's will that he does, and you can't stop it. And you're glad you can't. God has willed a universe for his glory. The universe exists for his glory. It's going to bring glory to God. He has willed to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. He has willed that all those who believe, he will save and bring into an eternal fellowship with him. There are aspects of the will of God that absolutely will happen because God wills them. He decrees that it will happen. But there are other aspects of the will of God that he commands, but he gives us the choice of whether or not to be in concert with his will or to disobey his will. These are things like commandments. You know, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't have any other gods before me. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill anybody. Don't lie, cheat, steal. You know, those kinds of things. God wills that these things be, but he allows us to choose whether to obey or not. And so when we come to Romans 12, we've been reading for 11 chapters about God's will that cannot be changed, God's grace that cannot be altered. That's why your salvation, once you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and the Holy Spirit has come into your heart and convicted your heart and brought you to a point of confession and, and changed you and, and given you that new uh, birth and that born-again experience, once God has done that, he doesn't reverse that. His will is unchangeable. And so the, the will of God, the unchanging will of God in the first 11 chapters is the foundation of what we're doing here. And so as we go on to talk about chapters 12 and following, where we're looking at the God commands, but we have a choice to make. The salvation is secure. The expression is what we're talking about. And how that works out is what we are talking about. So don't for a moment think that we're now going to say, and here's how you keep your salvation. It is, will you live out your salvation? You got that. All right. So we come to Romans chapter 12. And Paul says, I appeal to you. Other translations, I think King James says, I beseech you. The word there, parakaleo, for those of you who speak Greek, um, it, it means I encourage you, I beg you, I exhort you. I'm on my knees asking you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Paul says this is so significant that I'm, I'm just, just, just in this letter reaching out and trying to grab a hold of you and shake some sense into you. You need to see that knowing Christ as Lord and Savior means a change in how you live. And I want you to follow through on that. You've reached a point of decision. It's go or no go. And you've got to decide. Jesus told us that anybody who wanted to be in the kingdom of God and yet kept looking back would never make it. He said it this way, if you put your hand to the plow, and at that time the blade of the plow was in front of the farmer. And so as you're plowing along in that, in that situation, he says, you can't plow straight and keep looking back because you'll go the way you're looking. You'll be like Lot's wife who was told to leave Sodom with her husband. And as she left Sodom, she paused for a moment. The angel had said, don't look back. She looked back. She became a pillar of salt. 
You see, we reach a moment of decision. And Paul says, don't be looking back. I want you to look ahead to what God has for you. So I'm appealing to you. I'm, I'm, I'm begging you to do what I'm asking here. And so it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And in that word brothers is a whole lot of theology. Because in that word brothers, and of course it embraces the sisters, so we could say brothers and sisters. It says, I, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, not ones that are outside of the family, and I'm appealing to you that you might become my brother. He says, because you're my brother, because you're my sister in Christ, I'm appealing to you. Because chapters 1 through 11 has made your salvation secure, because chapters 1 11 have made the grace of God the only foundation for life, because you've come to experience that by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit, I'm appealing to you, brothers, that you would pay attention to the decision you need to make, to the, to the critical point and the critical moment where you are. And so that, that word brothers has a lot going on in it that, that ties us back into chapters 1 through 11. But then he says, by the mercies of God. Does anybody remember about a year ago when we got to this part in this verse? It was a year ago we were reading along. He says, well, by the mercies of God. To understand the mercies of God, we need to go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. I'm turning back there. Why aren't you? Oh, no. And so for this past year, we have been studying the mercies of God. We have been studying how we are saved by his grace, by his mercy. And so Paul doesn't found it. He doesn't say, I'm appealing to you because you really need to hunker down and try harder. He's not saying, well, I, I appeal to you, brothers, because you're really fine people and I know you can do better. He didn't say, I appeal to you because I see so much potential in you that's untapped resources and I want to draw it out of you. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. I want you to rely on the mercy of God. I want you to understand that this might be beyond you. And in fact, this is this life for God, for uh, lived according to the will of God. It's beyond you. But God's mercy has worked to bring you to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so by the mercies of God, I am appealing to you. I'm begging you. And here's what he wants. Here's what he says, and this is the decision you and I have to make in this kind of a context. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He says, I want you to be a sacrifice. Now, somewhere along the way, we got the idea that the Jews were a grumpy people who didn't like to worship. I mean, most of us have picked up this idea, and I'm not sure exactly where, but we got this idea that the Jews uh, were, were pretty grumpy folks, and they said, oh, no, now we got to go to the temple. All right, let's get the family together. We got to trudge, walk mile after mile after mile to the temple. Now we're at the temple. We got to have a sacrifice. Let's get a sacrifice. Okay. Now we're just standing and we're waiting for our turn, you know, you know, call call your number and when your number is called we'll offer your sacrifice okay great oh, oh wait it's time to sing again hallelujah hallelujah okay fine now do my sacrifice so i can go home we got this idea that the jews were grumpy old people you know why we do because that's the way we worship it's sunday gotta get up early gotta get up early since when was 10 45 all that 9 30 is not that early and folks Okay, fine. Got to get up early and go to that church. Okay, here we are. 
John's playing the guitar. Um, da -dum, da -dum, da -dum. Okay. <laughs> or the rest of you, it's, oh, the choir's going to sing now. Okay, well, I guess I can read something here. I don't know. Oh, oh wow, it's time for the sermon. Okay, I've got that mastered. You ready? <laughs> Took me years to learn how to keep my eyes open while I did that. We get the idea that the Jews were these grumpy people. They were not. They loved worship. When it was time to go to the temple, we get to go to the temple. You know, I'm glad when they said unto me, let's go. Let's go to the house of the Lord. And so they truck, truck up there and they get to the temple. Here we are at the temple. Let's get our sacrifice. Let's get our sacrifice ready so we too can worship God and our sacrifices in the pipeline. Can't wait to see my sacrifice so I too can worship God. What? It's time to sing now. The hallelujahs, the hallel psalms. We get to sing to God. It was a glorious moment. It was glorious for them. And the worship that was glorious for those Jews was the worship of sacrifice. Now, it was a pretty ornate process and a, a lot to be said about it, but just, just think of it this way. When the Jews sacrificed, every sacrifice reminded them of the grace of God. Every sacrifice reminded them that God had given a way for their sins to be forgiven, that a life would be substituted for their life, that blood would be shed so that life would come to them. The sacrifice was a reminder that God had not for, uh, for, uh, given up on them, but God was forgiving them. And the sacrifices were a way to worship God and thank God and be tied into what God was doing and bringing forgiveness and salvation into their lives. The sacrifices were a sign of the grace of God. And so when Paul says, I'm begging you, present your life as a sacrifice to God, he wasn't saying, okay, now it's time to go out and do something really horrendous. He was saying, I'm begging you to join in the joy of being a living sacrifice to the Father. See, sacrifice had to do with the forgiveness of sins, and, and of course, the sacrificial animal was, uh, the life was taken from the animal. And so you say, well, how can I be a living sacrifice? I might be living as I'm going up the altar, but I'd be dead as I'm coming down the altar. You got to remember Romans chapters 1 through 11. Chapter 6, Paul says, Jesus died for us. He died in our place. He was dead. He was buried. God raised him. He lives forevermore. And now we in Christ are dead to sin, but we are alive in Christ by the power of the resurrection. When Paul says, I'm, I'm pleading with you, be a living sacrifice, he's saying, I want you to be a, a sacrifice by the power of the living God in the power of the resurrection, a life that is lived on a level that no one else could imagine. This life of sacrifice is a life that only God can give. You see, we got this, this idea that, that sacrifice, we shouldn't have to sacrifice. Sacrifice is sort of a bad word. Sacrifice hurts. We don't want to do sacrifice. Paul says if you've ever been touched by the grace of God, you'll want to be a living sacrifice for God. We come to church and we say things like, I want to be fed. In fact, I want to be spoon-fed. 
In fact, I want to be spoon-fed, but don't give me anything I don't want. You just give me what I like. We come to church thinking it's all about us, and so we say things like, well, you know, I don't like that music. I like this music. I don't like the way this was done. I like the way that was done. When you look for a church, what are you looking for? I'm looking for some place that I can enjoy. And the modern church growth movement knows that. We design our churches now to be venues where you can have fun. Oh, don't get me off on that. I am not going to talk about the fact that we just want you to relax, have your Starbucks, walk in with your croissant, you know, sit there, watch a nice little visual presentation, and go home and feel like you've worshipped. The Christian gospel is a gospel of sacrifice. Jesus said, if you want to be a disciple of mine, here's what you need to do. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up a cross, an instrument of execution daily, and you need to follow me. To the wealthy, he said, leave your riches. To the tax collectors, he said, leave your tables. And to the fishermen, he said, leave your boats. To all those who came to him, he said, you need to leave father and mother and brother and sister and family and leave friends. Leave all and forsake all and come follow me. And this sacrifice is no burden. It's not something distasteful. I mean, what's, what's, what's the problem with giving up stuff that's worth nothing that we might gain heaven that's worth everything? And so Paul says, I'm praying that you'd be a living sacrifice, that the power of the resurrection would give you, would give you the wherewithal you might deny self and live in obedience to the will of God in Christ Jesus. I'm begging you to be a living sacrifice. He goes on to say a couple of things about what this sacrifice is like. He says, first of all, it's a living sacrifice. We talked about that. But he said this sacrifice is also a holy sacrifice. Now, the word holy means it belongs to God, and the word holy also means it reflects who God is. Now, let's take both of those. The word holy means it belongs to God. What belongs to God is God's. He doesn't let go of it. That's why believers in the New Testament are called saints. Saint is just a Latinized word that means holy. And so you are a saint. You are holy because you belong to God. That cannot be changed. You might not be much of a saint, <laughs> but you belong to God. That makes you holy because you belong to him. So then the one sense, holiness, belonging to God, that can't change. That's our security. On the other hand, holiness reflecting who God is, that's the challenge of Romans 12. Are we going to be as God is? Are we going to reflect who he is so that others would see the glory of God working in us making itself manifest in us. And so he says this sacrifice that you're to live is to be a holy sacrifice. Now understand that that should be our quick cue here that the Christian life is not just more of the same life everybody else has, it's just a little bit kooky on the edges. The Christian life is totally different. Parts of it look the same, I know that. Parts of it look like, uh, well, you're just being good or you're doing community service or you're trying to help people and help the poor. And that. I get all that. But deep down, the Christian life is one of dead to self and alive to Christ. It's one of self-sacrifice so that God might be seen in me. And it's not just that generic, sugary, sappy sort of God and stuff theology. It is the God, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, revealed to us in Jesus and made known to us by the working of the Holy Spirit. See, the Christian life is to be a holy life, is to be a different life. 
It's not just to be what you would do normally. It's to do what we would never have done on our own as we walk in the footsteps of Christ. I want you to be a sacrifice, and I want it to be a holy sacrifice. And then he uses the word acceptable in this translation. It comes from a Greek word that that literally means well-pleasing. It's two words stitched together, and so it's well-pleasing, to live a life that is well-pleasing to God. In other words, it's a life that makes God happy. It's a life that God likes to see, that pleases him. That redefines how we live. You know, suddenly when you're out in life, you're not thinking in terms of what do I want, what do I need, what can I get? You're thinking about what pleases God, what honors God, what glorifies God. How can I make God's glory known? That's the life well-pleasing to God. That's the standard. That's the measuring stick. That's what we're to be after. And so live a life of sacrifice that wants God to be pleased with who we are. Now, just think about all the time you spend trying to please other people and, and, you know, bundle that all up and say, well, to like three billion times more than that, I need to please God. I want you to be a living sacrifice. I want it to be holy. I want it to be acceptable and pleasing to God. And then Paul describes it this way. He says, if you do that, that is your spiritual worship. That's an English Standard Version translation. Um, other translations will talk about your reasonable service and so forth. How did we get there? Let's talk about the two words. The word spiritual. First, it's a word, well, the Greek word is, is logikos. Uh, the, the word logos related to it. Logic. Logical uh, is part of that same word family. Uh, This is your logical worship. This is your logical service. Now, most, or a lot, I'll say a lot of translators don't like to use a word like reasonable or logical because they think that that turns uh, the Christian life into just just a matter of intellect, that we sit in an ivory tower someplace and we just think. And so uh, our logical service is just sort of a calculated thing that we do. What it really means is this. If you've been touched by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, it just makes sense you're going to live as a sacrifice. It just makes sense. A lot of the stuff we do just has no logical connection to who Jesus is. How we live must be connected to who Jesus is and what he taught us and how he led us. So that that first word, here translated spiritual, the better, better translation is maybe reasonable, logical, you know, the make sense kind of worship. And now the second word there is uh, the, the word worship is sometimes translated as service. How do we get that? It's a Greek word that means the service of worship. In other words, what you do in order to worship. Now, some of us grew up in more liturgical settings where the worship service was very defined. The choir sang in the back, the introit, and then they walked in as we all sang, and they parted off and, and all that. And then, and then there was the reading of the Scripture, and then there was the, you know, the, um, the response of reading back and forth, and then we read a prayer, and then we heard the choir sing an anthem, and then we sat down and we listened to a homily because there wasn't time for a full sermon. And so we listened to the homily, and then after that we sang another hymn, song somewhere in there we took an offering we go to the back we have a benediction you know may the god bless you and all that and then then we walked out that was the order of service it's called the liturgy but it's called an order of service and it's the same every week fortunately we as baptists don't have a liturgy we don't have an order of worship the holy spirit is free in our church to guide and direct however he pleases fortunately the holy spirit always directs us to do the same thing at the same time in the same way (laughs) 
But if he wanted to, he could. You know, this, this is our service of worship. This is what we do in order to worship God. Paul says, I want you to be a living sacrifice, holy and God-pleasing, because it just makes sense. That's the way you will serve and worship God in your life. And if you become a worshiper of God in this way, as a living sacrifice for him, then you understand that worship just, doesn't take place just when we get to, together on Sunday mornings or, or, or on uh, designated occasions. Worship is something that consumes our lives, consumes everything about us. See, if somebody says, what are you doing tomorrow? You're going to say, I'm going to church. I'm going to church. It's at my, at my office. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's in my cubicle, and there's my church because when I sit down at the cubicle, I'm going to worship Almighty God. Now, look, folks, I understand it's going to be easier for me to do that at my desk tomorrow than you, it will be for you at your desk. Okay. But that's the idea. It's that everything about us, everything in our lives, the, the totality of it is all a sacrifice of worship and praise unto God. And so we come here to, to uh, Romans chapter 12 as we're looking at it, and Paul, having spent 11 chapters talking about the grace of God, he says, okay, now it's go or no go. Now it's either, you know, we're going to pull the trigger and do this thing or, or it's just going to drift off into nothing. It's time to make that decision. And I'd like to ask you, no, I, I'm, I'm appealing to you. No, I'm beseeching you. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Present your body a living sacrifice. Give your life as a living sacrifice of worship and praise to God that he would be pleased tomorrow. That'll mean a couple of things. We're going to see what that means as we keep going through Romans chapter 12. Um, really, as I've been studying and looking at this, I've, I've, in my mind, it comes out to about 30 or 40 sermons. But they're all good ones. <laughs> Thank you. But this coming week, you will be given the opportunity to do something you've always done and do naturally, or be a sacrifice for God and do what does not come naturally. You'll be given an opportunity to get mad at somebody or forgive them. You'll be given the opportunity to, to be giving and sacrificing or to be hoarding and miserly. You'll be given the opportunity to be patient and kind or grumpy and irritable. You'll be given that opportunity. And when it does, I'm begging you, at that moment, present your body as a living sacrifice to God, holy, well-pleasing. It just makes sense. Right? Let's bow together in prayer. Father, how gracious you are toward us and how grateful we are toward you. And that you have commanded these things and not left us on our own power, our own resources, but you have given to us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that our lives indeed might be given over in sacrifice and praise for you. So I ask your Holy Spirit to work in us, to give us the courage of faith, Father, to give us the strength and the power to live in such a way that Jesus is seen in us and all that we say and do. Father, that you would make of our lives 
a sanctuary of your praise. And I ask it in Jesus' name.